Hi, I'm Lauren Gilger, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, why some Gen Z voters say they plan to send a message by not voting in the presidential election. And the next edition of our series, Staying Power, with a longtime TV journalist here on why he never left. But first, the COVID pandemic may be largely in the rearview mirror for most of us, but it's still causing thousands of hospitalizations and hundreds of deaths each month in the United States. Recent data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention suggests the latest vaccine is still pretty effective. But the percentage of those who are up to date on their COVID boosters here and across the country remains pretty low. And now county public health officials are warning residents that an international visitor to Arizona was diagnosed with measles and could have exposed people in public late last month. And Arizona's high rate of unvaccinated children puts us at increased risk of an outbreak. Dr. Nick Staub is assistant medical director for the Maricopa County Department of Public Health, and he's on the line now to tell us more. Good morning, Dr. Staub. Good morning, Lauren. Let's begin with the vaccination rates here in our county. When we say there's a low child vaccination rate here, what does that mean? How low is it? So when we're looking at vaccination rates, what we're really trying to aim for is that rate that gives us community immunity or uh, herd immunity and, and really protects those who, for a variety of reasons, can't be vaccinated or their immune systems have not responded to vaccination. So we're mm-hmm. looking to reach that level. Each disease that we can vaccinate against kind of has a different level uh, that you need to reach. And so when we're looking at something like measles, it's a very infectious uh, disease. And so we need a, a high degree of community immunity. And we've fallen um, well below that, um, especially amongst our school age children that we really need to protect against severe disease with measles. Hmm. So what does that mean when it comes to this measles case that was in, I believe, parts of Chandler and a few public places late last month? What should people know? What we want people to know is that measles is spreading um, both nationally, globally, and, and with this case uh, here in our community. And so mm. we really need to increase that vaccination rate so that we can stop that transmission when we have these single cases that pop up here and there. And so this is really an opportunity to remind folks the best way we can prevent transmission, prevent disease with measles is that vaccination and people should be up to date on their vaccination. What about COVID vaccination rates? Do we know how many people here are vaccinated against COVID and how many are even up to date on those those boosters? Yeah, our, our data our data on COVID vaccine is not what it was during the pandemic. We don't have as strong data, but we what we do know is that the rates are very low. So even compared to flu vaccine, we know that the updated COVID vaccine, that one that came out for this respiratory season, uh, 2023-24, um, we're looking at 10% or lower of eligible mm. individuals who have gotten that updated vaccine. So uh, we have lots of room to improve there. That's interesting. So I wonder, like, it's so low. Does it start to raise concerns about sort of the public trust in public health and institutions and authorities like you and and like the CDC in general? There's, there's a lot of conversation um, in public health about that in our communications throughout the pandemic and then um, following. So 
Um, we will continue to do um, what we do, which is try and get the best information out to people in a way that they can understand. Um, and certainly in the area of immunizations and vaccines, um, that is that is our goal. So we work with a lot of community partners to make sure that they have the best information they, they can to reach their members um, with with the message that, that the best way to protect ourselves and protect our community is to be vaccinated. The CDC is now loosening some of its guidelines on COVID. It's, it's new guidance, it sounds like, will uh, take away the five-day isolation period for people who test positive for COVID. Can you tell us what the guidance will look like instead? Like if you don't need to stay home for five days alone, what do you do instead if you're test positive for COVID? So the report out this week is, is kind of a leak of a plan um, to change that guidance. So we have not received that guidance from CDC um, or from our state health department. Um, it is an eventuality. We expected that we would lower that isolation period to, to look more like what we recommend for flu or RSV or other respiratory viruses, um, but we don't have that guidance just yet. So from a public health perspective, um, we are still recommending uh, COVID isolation as it's uh, as it's recommended by CDC. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, eventually we expect that it'll look more like that 24-hour fever-free um, improving symptoms and that kind of thing. But again, not quite there yet. That's interesting. Is it just because there's so mu- much immunity built up in the community, we don't need to be concerned in that way? Or is is this something, you know, more people who are at risk should be concerned about? So the risk is still there. And certainly if you are at increased risk for severe disease from COVID, there are extra steps that um, you should take um, beyond what is kind of that basic recommendation. It's it's not really that anything has changed. It's kind of like what do what we know people are doing. And so mm. if if the um, if the guidance is not really being followed, if it's not um, effective, then I think we we try to in public health meet people um, where they are to to have the greatest benefit. Um, we know that there's a lot of difficulty in isolating for five days if you are a working parent or a single income household. Um, so many things go into that. Um, to make it really difficult to follow that five-day isolation. Yeah, so practicality is a factor there. Last question for you, Dr. Staub, uh, about home tests. There are lots of questions out there about whether or not they still work or if they're maybe just taking longer to come up with a positive result. What's the status there? So based on what we know about current circulating variants and what we're told by uh, the manufacturers and the FDA about how these tests are working, we believe that the home tests are still um, effective and accurate. I think the bigger question is, you know, how are we distributing them? How are they accessible to everyone in the community? And, and how are people using them if they have symptoms? And I think that those practices have all changed a lot in the last mm-hmm. couple of months so that we just have fewer people testing. Um, and again, the reason why from a messaging standpoint, kind of having um, isolation recommendations that are more, uh, they're applied more evenly across these respiratory infections, the easier it will be for people to follow. Makes sense. All right. We'll leave it there for now. Dr. Nick Staub, Assistant Medical Director for the Maricopa County Department of Public Health. Dr. Staub, thank you for coming back on. I appreciate it. Thank you.
2020 was a record-setting election for youth turnout. But a survey from the Kennedy School at Harvard finds 18 to 29-year-olds seem less likely to vote this November than they did four years ago. And my next guest wanted to find out why. Fortessa Latifi is a features reporter at Teen Vogue and spoke with several younger voters. She joins me to talk more about what she learned. And Fortessa, it seems like the question for some of these Gen Z voters, and generally ones who lean to the left, isn't how they're going to vote, it's if they're going to vote. And obviously this is a big group of people, so we're generalizing a bit here. But what did you hear from the people with whom you spoke? Yeah, well, I first saw this Harvard poll that showed that fewer young people were planning on voting in 2024 than did in 2020. So I decided that was a story worth looking into. And by the end of it, I'd found dozens of sources and they have a lot of reasons for not voting. They've decided that they're going to leave it blank or just not vote at all on anything this election. And That's really troubling for the Democrats specifically because they rely on the votes of younger people. When you say leave it blank, would they vote in some races, but not all? Like, for example, not the presidential race? Right. So some people were saying they would leave the presidential part blank and then they would vote in statewide races. Why? Well, I mean, they are just really disenchanted with national politics. It's really interesting. One source told me that power is the language that Democrats speak and the way to get them to get through to them is to refuse to put them in power. And they're hoping that decreased turnout sends a message. But if these are voters who ordinarily would would lean to the left, Are they not concerned about them not voting, putting someone that they like even less into office? You know, that's exactly what I said. But but they said that the issue is that they don't think Democrats have been listening to them and they don't expect Republicans to listen to them. So they've kind of like written Republicans off. But for Democrats, they're like, you need to listen to this generation and our needs or we're not going to continue voting for you just because you're, quote, the lesser of two evils. That was something that came up a lot is that a lot of people in Gen Z voted for the first time in 2016 or 2020. And they've been told in successive elections, you have to choose the lesser of two evils. And they're like, I would like an actual choice and not this, you know, this binary. What did they tell you about the potential consequences for them if if they don't vote and, you know, trying to teach Democrats a lesson? But in the, in the interim, you know, Republicans are running the show and maybe doing things that this particular group of voters isn't thrilled about. You know, they didn't actually seem that concerned that they would hand the election to former President Trump. Um, but. I mean, if we look statistically at how President Biden won in 2020, the thing that pushed him over the finish line was Gen Z voters. So I think they have more power than they think they do. Are there particular issues about which they're feeling particularly disillusioned with the current administration? Definitely. So one of the things that kept coming up in these interviews was Gen Z's differing views on Palestine and Israel. So we know that statistically Gen Z tends to be the most supportive of Palestine of any generation polled. So they have issues with what they see as Biden's pro-Israel stance. And they also feel like they've been let down on various issues like Roe v. Wade being overturned and $10,000 per student loan borrower not being forgiven. They feel like their votes don't matter in the Electoral College as much as it would in a direct voting situation where the Electoral College didn't exist. They're honestly just very disillusioned. 
So do you get the sense then that some of these voters are maybe, even if if it's subconsciously playing the long game here and, you know, they're willing to maybe sacrifice this election and maybe, you know, a few down the road to get Democrats more in line with what what they want them to be in line with? I do think so, but it's very reminiscent of the third party voters in 2016. You know, I'm from Arizona and I knew a lot of young third party voters in Arizona who said, I'm going to vote third party because Hillary Clinton's going to win anyway. And I want Democrats to see that, you know, I want different things from them. And then we all saw how that turned out, right? President Trump won. And some of those margins with third party voters could have made the difference for Hillary Clinton. And so it's like, I don't know. Did that work? You would have to ask those voters, like, did they think that their that their protest worked? Um, but it does. It is reminiscent to me of if you're going to leave it blank in 2024, it's kind of like the third party voter of 2016. What do the Democrats say about this? Like, have you had a chance to speak with the Biden campaign or other sort of national Democrats about whether or not they're concerned about this, if they think that they can do something about this? I did speak to the Biden campaign and they surprisingly said they weren't really worried about youth voter turnout expectations. They pointed out that we are still almost a little bit less than a year away from the election, but they didn't seem to have anything specific to share to me with me what they were doing to get youth voters to turn out, which was surprising. I didn't think that they really felt a sense of urgency about the polls or about the attitudes of of Gen Z voters. It's interesting because typically when you hear that argument, oh, we're still, you know, X number of months away, that is in relation to voters who are maybe not engaged. That does not seem to be the case with these Gen Z voters. They seem particularly engaged. Oh, they're engaged. They've just decided that how they're going to be engaged is by not engaging. (laughs) Yeah. Well, did any of them say that there is time to maybe pull them in? And like, are there things that that the president or his administration could do to win them over between now and November? I do think things could change. So, for example, if they started to feel like President Biden had a less staunchly pro-Israel stance, I think that would really move the needle, especially with this younger generation who is so pro-Palestine. I also think that the student loan borrower, the $10,000 promise per student loan borrower, um, if if that were put into place, I think that would make a huge difference. I think that it's it's difficult because a lot of these things are like things that President Biden doesn't really have the power to do, like codifying abortion. Like he would need congressional approval for that. And there's just not the numbers for that right now. But that's something that if that happened, I could see Biden going to young voters and saying, look, I told you that I would protect abortion and I would cancel student loans if you elected me and I did it. Because right now they feel like he said to them, I told you if you elected me, I would protect abortion and cancel student loans. But they don't think that he's done either of those things. That is Fortessa Latifi, features writer for Teen Vogue. Fortessa, good to talk to you again. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, how Flagstaff became a hub for some of the nation's best runners. We just have tons of trail systems that attract people. We have all the facilities you need. And because we have that infrastructure, people want to come and train there. We'll hear how these conditions have allowed NAU's running program to thrive.
But first, the Bureau of Land Management will be hosting a public meeting in Yuma tonight on the agency's Western Solar Plan. The Biden administration released it last month. The public comment period runs through mid-April. The BLM created the first solar plan in 2012, and officials say they're updating it now to reflect several changes over those dozen years, including developments in technology, changes in the industry and in the demand for solar, as well as the increased emphasis in the current administration for transitioning to more renewable energy. The plan maps out which public lands could potentially be sites for utility-scale solar development and which are off-limits from the start. In Arizona, the plan lists around 4.8 million acres as potentially available and more than 7.2 million acres as not suitable for solar. With me to talk more about this is Nada Wolf-Culver, Principal Deputy Director at the Bureau of Land Management. And Nada, how significant are the changes now relative to what this plan looked like 12 years ago? So some of the most important changes um, and most apparent will be the original plan, the 2012 plan, applied to six southwestern states. And since that time, we've seen the demand increase across the West, across all Western states. So this plan will now apply to all 11 Western states. Um, In addition, we are really taking a hard look at what are the role of the public lands? Where, how much should the public lands and can they contribute to meeting our renewable energy goals as a country? That's one of the biggest changes we're, we're making is we're analyzing based on what is the contribution the public lands should be making for utility scale solar. And that's because, again, these lands are managed for multiple use for all Americans. And it's very important that they do their part on renewable energy, but they also play an incredibly important role for people, be it uh, people who are making a living ranching or people who enjoy them for recreation or other types of energy development beyond solar. They, they just play a huge role in so many people's lives, and we want to make sure we are balancing that. Sure. Well, so how do you try to achieve that balance? Because as you say, you know, BLM land is used for a lot of different uses. But if you put, you know, a solar energy field on that land, a lot of those other uses aren't really available anymore. Yeah. So I think what what we're trying to do is is come up first with this what's needed. And then what we learned uh, in the last 12 years, as you note, is what's important is to have some bright lines. Uh, What lands are just not suitable for this type of industrial solar development, and then leaving it more open to what lands might be available. So that's how this plan is is set up. The update would be set up is identifying lands that are available for application and uh, identifying lands that are not. But beyond that, you know, we we try to look at what else should we be considering? So what you would see in this plan is a range of what we call alternatives, which is what it sounds like, We've tried to look at five different ways we could update this plan and ask the public for input on the factors we're looking at. So, again, we've looked at lands that just shouldn't be available, such as lands that have endangered species, critical habitat designations or sacred sites or recreation emphasis. Um, And then from there, we're looking at uh, lands that are closer to existing and planned transmission or lands that are already disturbed and degraded, and looking at combinations of those to see what makes the most sense. Do you have a sense, or is there a sense of 
how much of this land that you have deemed is available for solar development ultimately will become solar development? Like, is there a a sweet spot there? So the way we've tried to identify um, an amount to plan for is based on working with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. And what they have is something called a solar futures study. So we took all of this into account to literally look at if um, the administration has committed to getting us to a carbon-free electricity economy in 2035, what does that mean we need to generate as a country? What contribution of that comes from solar and what comes from solar on public land? And then once we know what we need to generate, we can estimate what amount of acres that will take. So that estimate currently is about 700,000 acres of public land that might be developed. It might not be that much um, as technology improves, but that is the best estimate we could come up with. And that's what we're planning for. And presumably that wouldn't necessarily be spread evenly across the Western states, right? Like I would imagine it would depend on on where the demand is, where, you know, utilities or other companies are looking to build these. Yeah, we again, we've tried to estimate that. Um, but yes, it's it's not perfectly distributed, partially, ter- you know, terrain um, has an impact on yeah. that, but also where we expect uh, proposed and existing transmission would be and other factors. So, right, it is not um, equally distributed, among those 11 states. What kind of time frame are you looking at in terms of you have this plan that's out? At what point might utilities start looking at the map and saying, oh, this looks like a good spot for us, putting in an application and, and maybe starting to get some of these projects built? Yeah. So the 700,000 acres is approximately over the next 10 years to start getting developed. And and we have been working um, on projects around the West, we have a lot um, that have been approved. Just in in this administration, forty seven projects have been um, approved, and then we have sixty seven or so projects we're already looking at. Um, so we we know those are underway, but we expect that to continue. We expect some of those projects go forward, some of those don't, based on ongoing analysis. So I think what we see is the demand is underway. The demand has been increasing. The demand has been increasing into states that we didn't previously plan for. And um, the demand is increasing, but in a way that we think we can better manage it through these types of, of factors of proximity to transmission or looking at disturbed land um, ensuring that we have these fat, you know, these requirements to minimize impacts and, and so forth. So I think it's ongoing. What are you hearing from some of the communities nearby the public lands? Like, are you, are you hearing from any communities or tribal communities about concerns about having these utility scale solar developments, you know, sort of in their backyards? So I, I did have the um the privilege to be at our first in-person public meeting in Boise. And um, there were a range of things that we've been hearing and we're again, trying to respond to those to make it a little clearer where projects might be suitable and where they might not. And that is reflected in our alternatives as well when you see this proximity to transmission, but also previously disturbed lands. That's something that we've heard a lot about. Um, And then again, I think what we've heard from communities is what happens next? What happens after the plan? 
And it's really important to, you know, to emphasize that what we're looking at here is taking some land off the table for these conflicts, but also or or narrowing for transmission or for degraded lands, but then the additional lands are available for application. They're not dedicated to solar. It's kind of what, what we think of as the beginning of the discussion. So when a proposal comes in, then there would be a transparent process that would involve the community. It would involve uh, what we call cooperating agencies, so the state, other federal agencies, local communities, and we would go from there and, and try to make sure we're addressing those concerns. All right. That is Nada Wolf-Culver, Principal Deputy Director with the Bureau of Land Management. Nada, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. And now it's time for the next edition of our series, Staying Power, where we're highlighting some of the Arizonans who have stuck it out in the Valley of the Sun and made their mark here in the process. I spent the last seven weeks trying to figure out how to never come back to Phoenix. (laughs) And then the second I get back, I'm just like, ah, man. You know, you just feel it. It, like, grabs you, and you're like, okay. It all brought me back to Phoenix, Hmm. whether I liked it or not. Think about leaving. No. It felt like the greatest challenge. Whatever you're running to, we should be building that Hmm. here. There's something about this place that, for us, is just magical. It's not like any place else. Today, we sit down with someone you might recognize from local TV, Morgan Lowe. And we begin tonight with a look at the situation at our southern border. Arizona's Family Investigates gave us an exclusive look inside Sassabee. Tonight, Morgan Lowe takes a look back from his shocking election victory to today's conviction. Morgan Lowe and photographer Mike Williams are the first journalist to travel to the town that is currently under siege. This is a smuggler's war, but its ripple effects are felt far beyond this deserted border town. Lowe has been a fixture on CBS 5 and now 3TV News for decades, and he's covered some of the biggest stories in our state's recent history. You don't want to talk to us about the child sex crimes cases. Uh, read the report. That's well, it. Don't you think you have something, you should be saying something about this? Read the report. How read could report. you let this happen? Lowe grew up on a ranch in the southern part of the state and has spent most of his life here. But his family's history doesn't actually begin in Arizona, but rather in old Hollywood. In its prodigious effort to produce great motion pictures with complete reality, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer has sent its film experts to the four corners of the earth. It goes back as far as his great-grandparents. My great-grandfather on my grandmother's side started Paramount Pictures and my great-grandfather on my grandfather's side started MGM and their kids got married. Then his grandfather made his mark as the head of MGM International and his father, Arthur Lowe Jr., he became a well-known Hollywood producer. His mother was an actress. He says he'll write a book about it all one day, but by the time Morgan was born, his dad had mostly gotten out of the movie-making business. By the time I came out, he had did one more movie. We moved to California for three years, taking kids who literally were used to peeing on trees outside <laughs> off the ranch. 
and putting them in the middle of Beverly Hills and Malibu uh, for three years. It may sound like that was great place to be, but we thought it was like a prison. We couldn't wait to get back to Arizona. That is a sentiment that has stuck with him throughout his life. Through his long career in news here, Lowe has had plenty of chances to cut and run, but he never did. So you you grew up mainly on this ranch in southern Arizona that's still in your family, that's been in your family for 100 years or so, I think you said. But you also sort of had this Hollywood upbringing in a way, living there for some time, but also just kind of being from this Hollywood family. Tell us a little bit about that. Is it true that Gene Kelly was your godfather? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I I think the biggest difference between – my brother and sister and myself and our, our neighbors and our friends that we had people like Gene Kelly and Natalie Wood and R.J. Wagner come to, to visit. And that was not an unusual event. So I wonder – I have to ask like because this is a conversation about the scope of your career and why you stayed in Arizona, right? But why didn't you go into movies? I think every kid in my family wanted to go into movies when they were really young. I was in one movie in Tucson called Kid Co. Hey, there you go. I was an extra, and the one day on set was enough to make me never want to be in a movie again. <laughs> it was so boring, and I was like, that is it. I'm going to stick with horses. That's right, horses. Lowe actually spent most of his childhood thinking he'd become a horse trainer. He was a standout on the equestrian circuit, traveling around the country, competing in show jumping and raising and selling thoroughbreds. So how did he finally land on TV news? I had a a pretty bad riding accident in 1989, and it kind of messed with me a little bit. And I dropped out of the national rankings. And Shortly after that, I got an internship at a TV station in Tucson, and when I walked into a real working newsroom, it was love at first sight. From there on, he was hooked. He made the jump from Tucson to Phoenix after a few years, and he never expected to stay long here either. My plan was to come to Phoenix for two years in 1999 and then move on to Los Angeles or New York or whoever would take me. I I thought this was just like everybody else does. (laughs) It was a stepping stone. But, he told me, the opportunities kept coming. So, he stayed. Covering Sheriff Joe Arpaio will always be a big deal, and being an aggressive reporter covering him was was really interesting. I I got to cover the invasion of Iraq for the company that I work for and, and not have to be based somewhere else. I went there for a month, and then I got to come home. Covering the border is is always, you know, in my opinion, one of the most important subjects that I cover because there are so many different aspects to it. And there's there's so much to do, especially if you are able to go into Mexico Mm. and cover it from there. And so that's a that's a big one. And I think right now, as big as any of those stories are, housing and water here in Arizona are are such amazingly huge stories. I think those are going to be as big as anything we've covered. Yeah. So you found it to be a fulfilling place to be a journalist, it sounds like. Yeah. And I have been very lucky. I worked for a very good company and we got bought by a very good company. There are so many people in this business who flame out and and oftentimes not from any fault of their own because they work for crummy companies. And and if if you've got a good place, don't. Don't go somewhere else. And I've never felt like 
I missed out by not going somewhere else. I think that's really rare. And did you ever sort of feel the the call? Like, I'm sure you've had the opportunity to go elsewhere. But I mean, did you ever sort of watch people on their career paths who have gone to the network, who have gone to the big cities and sort of said, like, I could have done that. Maybe I should have done that. You know, I, I have a lot of friends who went on and became network news correspondents. And I do get envious. I will be honest, sometimes when they get to cover huge events, national events, um, and I'm proud of the work that they do. But there are so many positives here that outweigh my life because I am able to live here and, and come home to my wife and kids every night and be able to go camping on the weekends and see this amazing state and see like every corner of this amazing state. These reporters that have gone on to network news jobs, they work all the time. They're bored a lot of time waiting for live shots. And I just I don't think I could handle that. And I've also I work for CBS News as a consultant. I work for the news magazine 48 Hours. I also get to teach at ASU and work as a TV news reporter and live in this amazing state. So I would not trade my career for any career. And in journalism, there's so much moving around. There's so many people who come in from other markets. There's so many people who are sort of market jumping as they get bigger and bigger in the in the world of journalism. What do you think about sort of parachute reporters or those kind of people who are here for a couple of years and then move on? I think it's great for them. That's the traditional way you do this yeah. job. You jump from market to market. But I also think that if you are here for a long time, you might be treated a little better by sources and by people because I I can't burn bridges. I can't be unfair to somebody because I know I'm going to need to interview this person or I'm going to need that department to, to cooperate with me in six months or in a year. And if I just come in and I've got nothing to lose and I just want the story to look the way I think it's supposed to look mm-hmm. – I don't have sort of that responsibility. And I do see that sometimes some very eager younger reporters come in and maybe they're not as fair as they should have been. And then it makes everybody look bad in this business. There's something also to be said, especially in journalism, for institutional knowledge, right, for just understanding issues in a way that somebody who comes in from elsewhere might not. I can't imagine starting over in a different news market in a different state. Um, I can't tell you how many times – it's not just me. There are, there are several of us at our TV station who have been here for a long time. But we get younger reporters, younger producers come over and ask, how, do, how does this work? And it's, it's nice to be able to know how that works. Yeah. You know what a story is here. You know what a story isn't here. <laughs> yeah. We know what kinds of stories do well here and what kinds of stories – don't do well. Arizona is a unique news market, and so is Phoenix. Stories, you've heard that dumb slogan, sex sells. (laughs) Stories like that here do not do well in the ratings, and they might do well in other news markets. They do not do well here. Stories about water do really well here. Stories about the weather do really well here. You know that. (laughs) Yeah, it It says something about us. I think it's a good thing. I always think of um, the next generation, too, in these conversations, right? Like you have two daughters. Is that Mm -hmm. right? Um, What do you say to them? Like do you hope that they'll stay here and sort of continue the legacy, continue to try to build something in Arizona that is as big as it could be elsewhere? Or do you hope they kind of go off and find their own way? I hope they stay here just because I want to be near them. (laughs) My oldest daughter is going off to college in 
the fall, and she really wanted to go out of state. She's going to the University of Arizona, third generation there, and I'm really happy about that. But I do hope that they stay here and, and are able to build on and, and be more successful than I've been and, and, and see that this place has so much to offer. Morgan Lowe, thank you so much. Thank you, Lauren. Stay tuned to the show to hear more editions of Staying Power. And if you want to see who else made the list, head to our website, theshow.kjzz.org. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. You might think of Flagstaff and think about skiing, snow, the mountain peaks. But if you're in the elite running world, you probably think of Flagstaff and think of elevation. The 7,000 or so foot college town has become a long distance runner's mecca in recent years. Elite athletes, Olympians and national champions have all come to Flag for its views, trails and yes, sky high elevation to train. And the Northern Arizona University team has become dominant in cross-country running. It's all the subject of a book out now by professional runner Matt Baxter. He and former NAU coach Ron Mann penned Running Up the Mountain last year to document the college's running story. I spoke with Baxter more about it, beginning with his own story of what brought him to NAU from across the globe. Yeah, so I had a bit of an unusual transition out of high school. Typically, as an international athlete, you would come to the States as soon as you finish high school, but I left it until I was about 21. Mm-hmm. And so when I was 21, I didn't have a lot of options available to me to be coming to college in the US. And so one of the few options I had was NAU. And, and in the end, they were they were basically my only option, And hmm. which is funny to think about now because obviously how well NAU is doing. But <laughs> yeah, I, I basically ended up in Flagstaff and at NAU just because it, it was one of the few options I had available to me. And it, it actually ended up being the best possible one. That's interesting. Tell us about your time at NAU because you were a force there, as, as I understand it. Yeah, my my time at NAU was incredible. I walked onto a team that was already really strong and, and performing at a really high level. Uh, and we won three national titles while I was there. Our team never lost a cross-country race. I had really special individual performances with 2017 getting second as an individual at the 2017 NCAA Cross-Country Championships. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just it was just an incredible time uh, to be living in Flagstaff and be at NAU. Yeah. So now you've written this book with Ron Mann, who was also a runner at NAU and also a longtime coach there. Um, and I want to talk about that in a moment. But let's first just establish something that lots of people might not know, which is that Flagstaff and NAU have become sort of like a a mecca for cross country, for runners, for distance runners in particular, right? What's it what's the community like there? Oh, the community is incredible for sure. It's um you can definitely see why athletes want to come to Flagstaff to train. And this has been something which has been building over decades and I mean half a century and more now that we just have 
tons of trail systems that attract people. We have all the facilities you need. And because we have that infrastructure, people want to come and train there. I mentioned this a little bit in the book. You have an incredible community of general runners. You have the collegiate community, and then you also have the professional community. Yeah. And everyone kind of links up and does little bits together. And you could you could be meeting for a long run and you have you have people from all those different communities there. And it's just it's just a very supportive, supportive environment. And no one kind of acts like they're too good for one another. Mm-hmm. You could do a bagel run on, on Thursday at 8 a.m. and you, you have over 100 people there uh. um, from all different walks of life. Everyone meeting up. Everyone just has this this common enjoyment for running and, and enjoying being in the Flagstaff community. Um, and it just works. Wow, that's amazing. So let's talk about the history of that, which is what you document in the book here. I mean, how did Flagstaff and NAU in particular become sort of a, a mecca for this? How did they become a capital of the running world? Yeah, you would almost think that Flagstaff should have always been this amazing place to run, but because there just wasn't the research, if we're going back to kind of the origins of the program and we're looking at when Red Habilat got this call to come out and and start this track and field program at NAU in 1964, Mm -hmm. NAU wasn't attractive um, as as a running program because we just didn't know much about altitude training at that point. And the the reason why people really started studying it was because in 1968 the olympics got awarded to mexico city and so suddenly everyone has to focus on on altitude training because that olympics was going to be held above 7000 feet right and so <laughs> people started coming yeah we had a few athletes come to flagstaff to train here uh in the build up for that olympics and suddenly everyone starts studying it because mm. now you have to know if you're building up for an Olympics, you need to know what the altitude is going to do to your body, how long you need to prepare. And so that was really around the time when Flagstaff started becoming a place where people thought, oh, okay, altitude training is a thing. Um, this could really have benefits. And so mm. we had a few Olympians come up here then. But even still, Flagstaff really didn't start picking up until we started getting, I would say, even to the later 80s, 90s, 2000s, when people really started to come here and altitude training was very well studied and, and starting to become pretty well understood. And now we're just at a point where, where everyone knows and we have people from all around the world coming to Flagstaff to train. I mean, if you hear in the summer before a world champs or before an Olympics, you'll see people from all over the world who are getting ready for these these big events and, mm-hmm. and who have the potential to get on the podium, to be an Olympic champion or world champion, and they're deciding to come to Flagstaff to train in the build-up to that. And it's it's just because it's such an incredible place to to train. What are the big competitors? Like I think of running, like high country running, and I think of maybe Boulder, right? Like there are lots of other places that do this. Does Flag fly under the radar a little bit or is it like the spot in the running world? Yeah, Boulder is a little bit lower, so it's closer to around five-ish thousand feet, whereas Flagstaff is at 7,000. There's a couple of different spots. I mean, even if you're looking overseas, a lot of athletes love going to St. Moritz is a really popular spot when Mm. people are building up for a European circuit. There's all kinds of spots around. I think the thing where Flagstaff is particularly special is because 7,000 feet is right around that perfect elevation where you're seeing really good benefits. But it's also really easy to go high and low. So mm. you could drive half an hour and you could be from downtown Flagstaff and you could be up at 9,000 feet right. up on the peaks. Right. And so there's benefits to being able to train higher and do some easy runs or long runs up there. But you can also drive 
45 minutes and be down in Sedona, which is around 5,000 feet. Um, it's about the same amount of drive, 45, 50 minutes to be down in Camp Verde, which mm -hmm. is about 3,000 feet. You can do a road workout down there. So that ability to be able to go high and low is one of the things that really helps Flagstaff stand apart. Ah, that makes so much sense. That's really interesting. Okay, so before I let you go, Matt, I want to give people a glimpse into the running world, like this distance world that you live in and you're a, you know, a professional athlete in today. I mean, what's like a normal run for you? What's your training schedule look like? Yeah, I, a normal run usually is just involving me meeting up with my teammates in the morning. And, and typically on easy days, we're getting in 10 to 12 miles in the morning. We might have another four or six miles easy in the afternoon. <laughs> we're working out twice a week. So doing sort of hard training twice a week, we'll have long runs that could be 20, 22 miles on a, on a Saturday or Sunday. And, and usually across a week, I mean, I'm getting in probably usually around 100 miles when I'm doing some of, some of my higher end training. My goodness. I mean, so like just crazy amounts of running involved in this and training involved in this. Tell me, do you have a favorite spot that you hit on your running trails every week where you're sort of like, oh, this is the place I wanted to be and I want to see this view or, or be in this spot, whatever it is? Yeah, it, it's funny. I think because in Flagstaff, it's so easy to just run from your front door that mm -hmm. a lot of the times I'm literally just running from my front door out on the urban trail system. But one of the, the loops that I've actually really enjoyed recently is one called Soldier's Trail, which is probably a couple of miles away from my house. And the reason why I picked up on this was because Lopez Lemong, who is a, a famous NAU alum who was on the cross-country track and field program, mm -hmm. he mentioned in the forward to our book that Soldier's Trail was one of his favorite trails in Flagstaff, and I was kind of embarrassed that I'd never run it. <laughs> and so I started doing it. It's about a five-mile loop out by Fort Tuthill and Flag. So I've been running that, and that's, I, I loved it. And this is the crazy thing. Like I'd lived in Flagstaff at this point for uh, it'd been almost eight years or probably seven and a half years before I discovered Soldier's Trail. And, and now it's one of my favorite spots in Flagstaff. So I'll <laughs> say that's probably the one that I'm enjoying the most at the moment. All right. Good advice there. Matt Baxter, professional runner with Hoka Northern Arizona Elite, an NAU cross-country alum, and of course, author of the new book, Running Up the Mountain. Matt, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for giving us a peek into this world. It's super fascinating. I appreciate it. Yeah, awesome. Thank you for having me on. So we are only midway through February, and incredibly, the month has already brought 45 inches of snowfall to northern Arizona. That, of course, is keeping the State Department of Transportation's fleet of snowplows very busy, clearing highways and roads of ice and snow. So it is timely that three new snowplows are ready to be added to the fleet. And you know what, Mark? They need names. They do. ADOT <laughs> just announced the finalists in its second name of snowplow contest. About 3,400 entries were received. Those have been narrowed down to the final 10. 3,400 is a lot. Okay, yeah. here are some of my favorites. We've got Scoopacabra. Fast and Flurious, mm. Snowy Wan Kenobi, that's my actual favorite, and the Plower Express. <laughs> so those are all good. Now, the three names with the most votes will be emblazoned on the driver's side of the snowplow cabs. Not too late, though, for you to weigh in. Voting closes at the end of the day today. That's right. To see the full list of names and a link to choose your top three, visit our website. That is the show.kjzz.org. For reference, last year's winners were Alice Scooper, Snowaro, and Frost Responder. <laughs> Alice Cooper is pretty darn good. Do you have any suggestions? What do you think? So 
Credit where credit is due, our producer Sativa Peterson came up with, I think, the winner, yeah? Snoconino. Snoconino. I like it. That is, to me, that is hands down the best. <laughs> All right. On that snowy note, grab your cafeteria tray, find yourself a, a snowy hill to sled down. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the show. For Lauren Gilger, I'm Mark Brody. Have a great rest of your day. Hope to have you right back here tomorrow. That's it for this episode of the show's podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, you can visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Lauren Gilger for Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.